So today's Bible reading comes from Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19, and that's on page 1006 in the church Bibles, if you have one. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Two ways there are, one of life and one of death. But a great distance there be between those two ways. Sounds a bit like Yoda, but actually that was the opening statement of a very old guidebook, I suppose, on the Christian life and faith. Uh, and by very old, I'm talking first and second century kind of old uh, that's how it opened, and in fact, that kind of theme was actually woven into a lot of Christian writings around that time in the church uh, as the fundamental Christian call, uh, that we would choose, of course, therefore, the gospel of salvation and then live like saved people should live. And uh, I think we need to recover that message of the two ways, and uh, more so the chasm in between those two ways. Because it wasn't just written in those old Christian books, of course. Uh, the Bible itself uses that same metaphor over and over. That's where they got those uh, ideas to frame their old Christian books. Uh, the Bible consistently is putting that choice in front of us, uh, not just in terms of what we believe, uh, but how we then live uh, with a great clarity on these two things and the distance in between. Here's uh, just a few examples uh, of the two ways uh, metaphor uh, in scripture. From the law of Moses uh, first, uh, the Israelites sitting perched on the edge of the promised land, ready to go into the promised land. Uh, and he said to them in Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life. Choose life that you and your offspring may live. 
Uh, it sounds like a no-brainer when you put the choice so clearly and simply as that. But what does that choice look like? It, well, he goes on in that scripture and says, Choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. So many active words there, aren't they? Loving, obeying, holding. Uh, the good choice is an ongoing way of life. Uh, example two, through the prophet Ezekiel, God reveals his plans for his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. And why? To cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When God cleanses his people from their way of sin, it is for a new way of life. One more example, this time from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The gate is narrow and the way is then hard that leads to to life. The two ways metaphor of the gospel in scripture isn't just about a one-off choice that we make at the gate one day. It involves the way that we then live. We need to be very clear on this. Jesus saves people, but he saves them into something, into a new life, which which means I can't just say, you know, oh, okay, I believe in Jesus and then just carry on living in sin, as if that would be to say, do you know what I mean? Well, well, if he's going to save me from my sin, I guess it's okay if I keep sinning. No, that's not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of life. It's all through scripture, this metaphor, and so Hebrews 2 carries this very same theme. This is the call of the gospel to us. Gospel doesn't just save us from the judgment of our sin. It also saves us into something because God then transforms us away from our old way of sin. And we've spent a good long while uh, looking in the first part of that, the, 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 the part that saves us from judgment. Uh, in last week's reading, for example, very long reading, thank you for your patience, that passage drove home uh, how Jesus has completely atoned for our sin by laying down his life on the cross. As Anthony spoke for, uh, to before in our, in our Life and Doctrine segment, the old ways were just parables waiting for that day when Jesus would do that. That what he did on the cross saves us from God's judgment. That is atonement and we are atoned with our faith in him. We might catch the last verse if you have your Bibles open there that we finished on last week just to lock that first truth down. Where there is forgiveness of our sins and lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so Jesus, as we have seen all through this letter, is the true high priest. As verse 21 says again here today, 
having now offered up himself as the sacrifice that takes away that judgment of God against our sin. Because our judgment fell on him. If we will only repent of that sin and believe. Uh, Today's passage now, through the middle of chapter 10 here in Hebrews, it takes us into the transformed part of the gospel that, that necessarily flows on from that salvation we've been thinking about. That's why there's a therefore there in the first verse, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 10 and verse 19 at the start of our text today. There's a therefore to make sure that we catch that, yes, this does actually flow on from having been saved. And uh, the since word that follows sums up that whole save part of the gospel we've been thinking through these recent weeks. Therefore, verse 19, brothers and sisters, since, well, since what? Since, here's the summary, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's the save part of the gospel that we so love. Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, has offered himself up as a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. And so, yes, we are completely forgiven by his blood with our faith in him. That's why he came, to atone for our sin, to reconcile us to God by laying down his life for the judgment that we should deserve. Which means that now... As verse 19 here puts it, we can enter the holy places. And by holy places, it's talking about going right into the very presence of God. If you recall chapter 9 of this letter, right into his presence, to be his very people and to have him as our very God and and forever. It's a close and an intimate picture of the fellowship that we can now have with the living and almighty God in that little phrase. Jesus has done that for us. He has brought us right to our God. And the call that logically follows then in verses 22 through the rest of the paragraph is that we obviously should therefore draw near to our God with a true heart in full assurance of this faith knowing that we have been washed clean we have been made fit to be in his presence and that we hold fast to our confession that is we continue to trust in Jesus for all this so too that we should consider how to stir each other up in this this epic gospel truth into love and good works, meeting with and encouraging each other in this good news of our, of our new life together in Jesus Christ. See, to be saved is to be brought into that transforming part of the gospel, as is the call all the way through Scripture, so too here in Hebrews, no surprise. God saves us so as to make us new. So let's look a bit closer at this first paragraph, these verses here about that, what a transforming life looks like under God's saving grace. First of all, we should reiterate that what Christ has done at the cross is perfectly sufficient to atone for our sin. And so we can be assured of our forgiveness in his name. It's because what he did was sufficient 
Been reading that all the way through. Here it is again in that word assurance. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're washed, if you can see the connection thread running through here, we're washed by our faith in what Jesus has done. Not by the transformation, not by the change that God will now work in us, for that would tie our hope of heaven back to us and it would take away from Jesus his work and what he did and his role as our saviour. No, it's in Jesus that we have been washed, ready for the presence of God. It's because of his atoning for our sin that we've been thinking about today. That liberating truth of the gospel sets us free, sets us free in a way that that our hearts can now just be thankful, thankful to God and and joyful to just go happily seeking after Jesus' way now in, in response to his gospel. And so, as the letter gets us to here, We should. He didn't wash us so we'd go straight back out and just keep living in the mud. No, let us draw near with true hearts and in full assurance that we've been forgiven and given a new life. The second thing we're called to here as believers is to hold fast to this confession of faith that we have. Verse 23, let us Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can stand firm because of him, because of his faithfulness. This is the implication of everything we've been uh, talking about these past few weeks. We can have complete security in what he has done and because of who Jesus is. What he has done for us is, is rock solid. So we need to hold fast our confession that, that only the blood of Jesus can save us and it saves us completely. Notice the phrase there though, of course, without wavering, which suggests that at, at certain times someone or something is, is going to make that hard. It's going to make it hard for us to hold on to our faith. We can take it for granted, friends, that, that life in this new way we've been given, won't just be smooth sailing all the time. But when those tough times come, the instruction here, although it might be difficult at that time, the instruction is simple. Hold fast to our trust in Jesus because he is faithful to his word. Third thing then that we're called to, verse 24. Notice, by the way, all these are flagged with that phrase, let us. Let us Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Contrary to popular belief, God does not save people into solitude. The Bible is all the time speaking in community language. Plural language, church language, family language. We are saved into God's household, his people. Our modern world is way off track with that. So we best pause and and consider a couple of dimensions on this third call here. One, as believers, we need encouraging. We need stirring up. We need the benefits of 
healthy Christian fellowship. Some people try to convince themselves that they don't need these things, and that is the way of our wider world, of course. But this scripture, like many others, speaks against that idea. And pretty clearly, we'd have to say. And two, though, we're actually instructed here to encourage others, aren't we? We're called to meet with the family that that we should encourage them, spur them on to love and good works. So even if you do manage to convince yourself that you don't need these things, what defence do you offer for refusing this simple gospel call to love your brothers and sisters in community? Christian, you have been saved into a people for God. Every one of those people has a pretty tall order in front of them trying to map the rest of their way through this life and hold fast to their faith through all kinds of trial and suffering. Things that have been or or are now or are still coming for them. The call on us here is to stick together. Work with the family. Get alongside people. Get in and help each other through. And who knows, of course, it might even be you someday that needs that help. The first paragraph then, if we take all that, shows us the way of the gospel. The first of those two ways, the response of a true heart, as verse 22 says. It captures very nicely that we are not alone in our faith. No, we are not alone. We have access to God, for one. We have a sure hope that's been given to us that will endure with us through anything for two and and we've been saved into a family for three. And so every believer who is living out this kind of way, drawing close to God, drawing down deeper in their faith and drawing close to others in God's family, that will they ought to know how right that response is. This is the way of Jesus. But there's a great challenge here, therefore, a rebuke, if you will have it, of other responses we might sometimes have to this uh, transform part of the gospel that God intends for those he saves. So those who aren't drawing near with a true heart need to hear these verses because some believers don't draw near to God. Uh, Some don't particularly draw upon their faith very much as they live out their life. And some don't draw near to their brothers and sisters. For very many reasons, no doubt, on all of those things. But I wonder if they aren't all somehow connected to self. If, as is the way of our culture, we are living for ourselves, then then there'll be no end of little ways and little things that distract us and and hold us back from the calls in this first paragraph. There's a disconnect between our self-infatuated culture and the communal family language that the Bible calls us into. We've got to fight off that cultural narrative in the background and we've got to live out our lives now as God's people, plural. Yes, God is saving to himself a people, not just a bunch of random individuals who can all go and do whatever they like. Uh, if you've been taken in then by that cultural deception of our age and trying to live your faith on these three things in some kind of bubble, then, then let this first paragraph roll around in your heart and have its way with you. 
draw near to God. Draw down deep into your faith and draw near to each other to, to encourage one another in the same. You see, the thing hanging over all of this is, is that there are, at the end of the day, only two ways. And the first paragraph here in our text today paints a very clear and, and a very beautiful picture of the way of life. And the second paragraph takes us into the alternative. But, but here again, the glorious truths that this letter has been proclaiming before we do break into paragraph two. The truth that Christ has come once and for all to, to give his own body and blood to receive the punishment that should fall on us for our sin. This sacrifice of atonement that reconciles us to God, brings us into his presence such that, yeah, yeah, we're cleansed of sin, ready to be with him forever as his people. It's a gospel truth and it's a gospel hope that cannot fail because it rests on him. To hear that glorious gospel and, and do nothing at all in response, to, to just ignore all of that, that these scriptures proclaim and, and just carry on you know, as we were living in defiant sin, well, that would be to profane even further the blood we now know that Jesus has shed to pay for our sin. No response. To this, that would be the worst response to this, given what we know about our sin and God's judgment. And verse 26 brings us into that alternative. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. One way or the other, as, as we discovered last week in this scripture, everything will be brought under Jesus' feet. If we thought the old covenant given through Moses brought judgment on those who violated God's law, then how much more will judgment fall on the heads of those who now even know these truths of Jesus that we've been reading about each week? Those who hear of what God has so graciously done for us to pay for our sins so we can be reconciled to him and, and nevertheless they just plumb ignore it and, and carry on living out the old way of sin. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What terrifying verses. Here we come into the fourth warning passage in Hebrews. But we should understand that verse 26 here is speaking of a, of a hardened heart that resists God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. It's not speaking about the way we all will still stumble in sin every now and then after having become believers in this gospel of grace. That's a natural outfall of, of what comes next, the battle that we're now all to fight. We won't win every battle against temptation. Every believer will still struggle with sin. 
That's not what this paragraph is talking about. What it's talking about is those who have heard and understood the gospel of forgiveness in Jesus' blood, and they may even call themselves believers, but they have nonetheless decided to keep living in an ongoing rejection of, of God's righteous way. It's talking about a conscious and continuing decision to live in willful sin. So, so on that whole matter of sin that we're talking about, for which Jesus came, despite the sacrifice he laid down at the cross to atone for sin, these people in paragraph 2 are unrepentant. Forgiveness, you see, is ultimately for the penitent. If we don't want to repent of our sin, then, then we aren't really wanting forgiveness. And we won't therefore come into this great reconciliation with our God that we've been reading about. We will remain as his enemies. And even more so, it says here, since we've thrown his, his great and costly mercy to us, we've thrown it back in his face. And of course, in the unrepentant state, there may not even be a conviction of sin in the first place. So let me say this about paragraph two. If you're struggling in your fight with sin, then verse 26 is not talking about you. This is talking about those who aren't even fighting. This is talking about ongoing and willful sin. Every believer is weak. Every believer sometimes will fail despite their desire to live righteously under God. The call to us in that regard is in paragraph 1, to be encouraged and to keep returning in repentance and keep asking God for help with this battle. Draw near to God. Draw down on your faith. Draw in with your brothers and sisters for help too. But above all, we must remember that through faith in Jesus, what do we have? We have a high priest interceding for us always. So when we, re we fall, we return in repentance and we receive again his sure mercy. That's been the message of the whole letter more broadly leading up to the warning here. The message of the very last paragraph, in fact. But if you are consciously choosing to keep living in sin, willfully, deliberately, with no regard to Jesus' call upon you, then, then this warning passage is one you must hear. The consequence of, of choosing sin over choosing Jesus is terrifying. These verses are terrifying, and this is eternal. If you choose sin over Jesus, then you trample all over his offering for sin, verse 29 says. You make a, a mockery of his life that was laid down for us and our sin. A means of forgiveness God has put forward, it no longer stands if you reject it. The consequence is that you will therefore remain condemned under the righteous judgment of God against your sin. Anthony captured that in the Life and Doctrine segment before. The gospel is wonderful news, but, it, but if you won't receive it, if, if you won't let Jesus receive the judgment for your sin, then the gospel is terrible news because your judgment therefore must still fall on you. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
everything will come under Jesus' feet, be it the one way or the other. We should all therefore examine our hearts very carefully in light of such a terrifying warning because here's the thing, we all will yet sin. Spoiler alert if you didn't realise that yet. We all will yet sin. So we must know if we're we're now only stumbling in sin or if we're still wholly given over to sin in our lives and, and therefore sitting under the judgment that it will bring. This might be of some help in that regard. If, if when we do sin, we are convicted of that by the Holy Spirit, to fall before the Lord in repentance and are committed to seeking after his righteous way once again, then, then we're not the people in paragraph two here. But if when we do sin, we are not convicted of our guilt, Or perhaps we are convicted, but we we just ignore that conviction and push it away, try to justify the sin, perhaps, or offer up some, some cultural excuse for it, perhaps, and we continue to pursue that sin, then we are those who go on sinning deliberately, as verse 26 puts it here. After having heard the only gospel that can save As I say, listen to that warning here, therefore, if that's you. To avoid the terrible consequences spelt out in paragraph two, then then stop. The gospel call for those who go on sinning deliberately is to stop. Stop pursuing that sinful way. Stop justifying it. Stop trying to rationalise it in light of uh, our social culture today. Stop, stop, stop and repent of that sin. Throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus and then seek after his way. The fear set out in these verses is for the stubbornly impenitent person. That would include all those who've never come to Jesus before and and would therefore still identify, I suppose, as unbelievers would also include people, though, who have taken on the name of Jesus because, I don't know, they like his vibe or or, or some such thing, but they have no real conviction of sin in their life and and nor any understanding, therefore, that he came to die for their sin. It would also include people who think they do lay hold of his salvation, but they haven't truly come to him in repentance. They don't actually want to forsake their sin and live now for Jesus. They just presume upon him that he will forgive their sin, which to them basically means, well, they can keep on living in it. But the gospel way doesn't run like that. God doesn't just secure our forgiveness at the cross like this and then, and then just leave us as we were. No, he saves us from our sin and sets about transforming us from our sin. He gets to work equipping us to fight sin. We're called now in the scriptures to to put sin to death, not to pursue it willfully, but to fight against it in our lives. So so heed this warning if if you're believing with your mouth, I suppose, but resisting true change in your heart. There are but the two ways. 
and a great chasm in between. God does not give new life so that we can keep living out the old. To hold our love for sin above our love for Jesus is actually to reject what he came to do for us. But hallelujah, if you've received all of this from Jesus, hallelujah, praise be to God, because his is the way that leads to life. This is what it looks like. The Spirit brings his people into a conviction of their sin in an ongoing way. Conviction of sin unto repentance in an ongoing way. To receive the forgiveness held out in Jesus unto salvation and eternal life. These are the things that mark the first of these two ways, the way of life. So if it's clear to us that that we don't want to suffer the fate of the second way here, then the fix to it all is captured back in paragraph one. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Trust in him. Recognise that his way is right. And keep returning to him in a, in a heart posture of repentance. Keep asking him for more strength to fight. Uh, hold fast your confession. Live out this gospel truth. Come whatever may. And support one another. Encourage each other. Step, uh, step in and, and stir up each other to love and good works. Keep meeting together as the people of God in order to do these things because the day is approaching when we will all stand before our God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scripture. Even when we get to the terrifying parts and we thank you therefore for what we've read today. Uh, the good and the bad uh, that's contained in here. And we thank you and we ask you that you would help bring great clarity into our hearts as we uh, move forward after reading this scripture. Uh, Help us to know where we stand with you. Help us to be honest as we examine ourselves. Help us, Father, to choose life. And having chosen life, help us to know that life is ours. We thank you for the great reminder here at the start that this rests on Jesus and that he has atoned for our sin, that he is our priest who intercedes for us, that he has opened up the way for us to come right to your presence. Therefore, Father, we pray that you would continue your great work in us to keep getting us ready for that great day. And Father, for those of us uh, that may be here or or for those we might know who have not yet stepped into this way of life, um, we pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, bring conviction of sin, that you would bring repentance into people's hearts, that they too may walk in this new way of life. We pray these things for your glory and for the eternal good and benefit of your people. And as always, Father, uh, please put everything that I've said now to the fire so that only this word of yours does remain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.